I take a moment of personal privilege before reading my text and speaking to say thank you to all of you for the kindness that you have extended to Joni and I over these past seven weeks. You are a delight. You can smile, it's okay, you are. <laughs> I'm so incredibly grateful for your pastor. I think Josh is an exceptional young pastor in this movement. And I'm excited by the fact that he is here and investing in all of you. It is a rare thing for a pastor to hand over his congregation to someone like me for seven weeks and to give me the responsibility of the charge that he has. I hope I have not taken this for granted and have discharged his faith in me in ways that have been helpful to you. But I am incredibly grateful for him and for his kindness and faith in me. I would also be remiss if I did not publicly thank my son and daughter-in-law for their extended kindness. They've had their in-laws with them for seven weeks. <laughs> you know the old adage about what's the, what, what fish you got it. Is it what do, what do fish and, and, uh, and guests have in common? After about two weeks, they both begin to stink. And we've been here for seven weeks. So, <laughs> yeah, But who's counting, right? That's it. Um, we have loved every minute of it. Uh, for, well, bless your heart. Thank you, Susan. Um, we've been very isolated, as everyone has, with COVID. And we have been isolated from family over the course of most of our adult lives uh, as they've gone on to do ministry. Our kids have all, are all in pastoral ministry. And so we have been separated by distance, as the Lord has called people here, there, and yon. And we've moved around to spend seven weeks with family. has been an incredible, incredible blessing. And so I have gained far more in this exchange than you have. And for that, I cannot begin to thank Doug and Susan for their kindness and love. I think you have a great staff. I'm so impressed with Brandon and what he brings to the table here and what Pastor Mindy is doing with children and of course the glue that holds it all together in Brenda uh, just makes for a very special group of folk that lead this congregation. You have made some wise and helpful decisions. But I remain confident in the fact that this congregation's days are the best days of this congregation are still yet to come. Uh, evidence of that has been in your kindness in listening to these sermons and in responding to me. I've enjoyed the times of getting to know one another. We've eaten hamburgers and hot dogs together. We've, um, we've just been sharing life together. Uh, I, we do a lot of what I call hallway conversations where you just kind of meet people as you're walking around. It's been a blessing and a joy. I'm excited that Josh is coming back. I'm excited to go back home to Florida, I think. If things <laughs> go badly, you may see me next week. I don't know. We'll see how, that, we'll see how things go. Uh, but I look forward to hearing great and wonderful reports uh, about the ongoing life and mission and ministry of this exceptional congregation. Thank you to you all. Now, if you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. 
My text is verses 33 to 37. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 33. If you need some context, Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost when the church is born or formed. The Holy Spirit falls. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is still walking in the earth. He ascends before Acts chapter 2 and the Pentecost event takes place. And that runs into uh, chapter 3 and the events there. And now in chapter 4, they're trying to figure out how to minister to one another in this tremendous influx of people, some 3,000 plus people who have suddenly formed a church in the city of Jerusalem. Hear these words that Luke, the author of Acts, writes about that situation. He says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone, anyone who had need. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I'm really confused as to why Barnabas gets singled out here. I'm not sure what he did that is so exceptional, so unique, so special, that he gets a singular designation in Luke's narrative. What's so special about Barnabas? For that matter, what's so special about what he did? Now, I'm not trying to say it wasn't important and valuable and part of the whole ethos of what's going on here in the life of the church in Jerusalem. But if you read the text carefully, he wasn't the only one who sold property. He wasn't the only one who sold land. Apparently, all these new believers, now that Pentecost was, was over, all of these believers are selling property and lands. In verse 34, again to go back, it says, that there were no needy persons among them. And the reason that there were no needy persons among them was that people from time to time, wasn't every day, but from time to time, somebody would sell a piece of land or house and they would then bring the money from the sales, they'd bring it to the apostles and they would offer it to be distributed to anybody who might have a need. Very interesting process. But there's no indication that Barnabas's donation was unique. Doesn't say in the text it was the largest. Doesn't say in the text that it was the most pivotal. That somehow at the right moment that changed the church, he happened to bring a donation and that changed everything. Doesn't say anything like that. Nothing is special or unique, at least seems to be, about his donation. And Luke doesn't distinguish Barnabas's field, what he sells, as being a unique field. He just mentions that Barnabas has property, a field, and he sells it and gives it as many others did. So I'm struggling trying to figure out why Barnabas is singled out here. This isn't just a preview of what happens. If you know anything about Barnabas, he becomes Saul's uh, missionary partner. That's down the road quite a bit. And this isn't just looking forward to let you know who Barnabas is. No, there's something more in here that I'm desperately trying to figure out because on its face, it doesn't seem like Barnabas and what he does is any different than what many, maybe hundreds of people did during this period of time in Jerusalem. Why single them out? 
Why is he even mentioned for doing what everyone else was doing? On top of that, there is this kind of um, insertion that Luke does where he inserts that they changed his name. Up until this point, his name had been Joseph. If you had run into him where he lived, everybody would have called him Joseph. But now, now suddenly, the disciples, the apostles, change his name from Joseph to Barnabas. That seems like something that's reserved for a lot of biblical luminaries. You know, Abram becomes Abraham. He becomes, instead of just an exalted father, he now becomes the father of many nations. That's what the name change means. And then, of course, you've got uh, the, the change that Jesus gives to Peter, who is Simon. But then after the confession of faith, he says, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So how does Joseph, this Levite from Cyprus, get to be included in this, this group of luminaries who have their name changed to describe something about them. And his name is changed from Joseph, a very common name. After all, that's Jesus' so-called father, right? It was a very common name to Barnabas, which isn't a very common name because it means son of encouragement. So what was it about Barnabas selling this field and donating this money that made him Barnabas, that made him a son of encouragement. It just seems like an odd designation for a fairly simple act. Now, having set that out, I must tell you that there are a few clues in the text that because we're 21st century people, we don't pick up on. It's not that we're dumb or stupid or any of those kind of things. It's just that we're not heaped in Jewish tradition and in Jewish understanding. A first century Jew reads this text and reads it differently and hears these clues where you and I might not necessarily hear them and understand them. The first clue in here that helps us is that he is called a Levite. I don't know if you know the story of the origin story of the Levites and where they came from, but it is a fascinating story, and you should be aware of it. Levites were one of the tribes, one of the 12 original tribes of Israel. When Moses uh, led the people of Israel out of uh, slavery in Egypt and into uh, the, uh, the land that God had promised them, or to or toward the land that God had promised them, there were 12 tribes that were gathered together, one of whom was the Levites. Now, after they had crossed the Red Sea and were now at the mountain of God, the mountain where uh, Moses had first heard God speak from a burning bush, Moses left all the nation at the base of the mountain, and he went up on top of the mountain. He went up on top of the mountain to hear again the voice of God. Who are we? What should we do? To get instructions directly from God. And of course he does. He gets the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. What you might have forgotten is that there is quite a bit of time <laughs> that elapses between when he goes up the mountain and when he comes back down. Quite a bit of time. So much so that the Israelites become nervous. They become nervous that somehow Moses has fallen and broken his neck, that he's displeased God and God has, has killed him, or that he's lost, or that God isn't speaking, or that this was all a mistake, or whatever it is, the nation of Israel, these hundreds of thousands of people, get really nervous at the base of the mountain. So much so that they solicit Moses' brother, Aaron, who apparently is an artisan, to help them form a new religion. Because after all, Moses is gone, and whatever God he was talking about has gone with him. And so they bring all the gold, silver, and all the stuff that, that the Egyptians gave to them, and they give it to Aaron, and he melts it down. Apparently, he's an artisan, and he forms a golden calf, and now they have something to worship. And they begin this frenzy of worship at the base of the mountain. As they're in the midst of this frenzied worship, Moses comes down off the mountain. Well, you talk about bad timing for the Israelites. 
So Moses comes down off the mountain, and he is not pleased. That would be an understatement. Uh, this, is a, this is a terrible situation, so much so that he even tosses the Ten Commandments. You know, he tosses and breaks them. He's so mad. And he's trying to get the people under control because obviously this is a coup. This is, this is, this is a rebellion that's going on. They've, they've left God. He's not able to get everybody under control, but he gets most of it under control. He, he confronts Aaron and says, what in the world are you doing? And Aaron says, well, not my fault. They, they made me, you know. Boy, we have great excuses as human beings for our actions, don't we? And he looks out at this crazy group of people that are still, many of them, in frenzied worship. And he says, is everybody, is everybody going crazy? Has everybody bowed down and worshipped this golden idol? Has everybody done it? And the answer is no, not everybody has. There's one group of people, one tribe, and they are resolutely not participating. The name of the tribe, they were the Levites. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 32, this is a tough passage, but in Exodus 32, Moses is at the, standing at the entrance to the camp, and he says this. Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, and he says this to the Levites, you've been set apart to the Lord today. For you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. I know that's a hard passage for us to hear, but these are critical moments and times. The whole idea of worshiping God is up for grabs, and there are people in the camp who will never, who will never worship God, and they will become a festering stool, sore in the camp. They are eliminated as part of the punishment of breaking one of the commands that now lay in pieces on the ground. The Levites, who are so committed to the idea of God and worshiping God, become his instruments of judgment. As a result of this, when Moses finally comes back down and begins to give instructions about how the worship life of the Israelites will go, he designates two particular groups to be priests. The first is Aaron and his family, and it's referred to as the Aaronic priesthood. Aaron is to become the high priest, his sons will become the high priest, and this idea of the high priest and that essential role in the worship life of the church or of the, uh, of the Israelite community is designated through Aaron and his descendants. It's the Aaronic priesthood. There is a second group of people that are also designated as priests, and they are the Levites. They become the Levitical priesthood. While Aaron and his descendants will take care of the actual worship experience in the temple, they will be the ones making the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement and all of these high holy days. It is the Levites who are charged with the tabernacle. They're the ones that minister in the tabernacle. They set it up. They take it down. They move it. 
Uh, they, they deal with the, the materials that are in the temple when they have to move, or in the tabernacle, when they have to move the tabernacle, which they did with some frequency, they have to pack it all up and they have to reset it all, all the altars, all the cups, all the basins, all the materials, all the cloth, all the things that are there can only be handled by the Levites. They are to be responsible for the Ark of the Covenant. They're to be responsible for the transportation of the Ten Commandments, which are in the Ark of the Covenant, of Aaron's rod, which is in the Ark of the Covenant, of some of the showbread, which is in the Ark of the Covenant. And no one, no one can transport the Ark except for the Levites. So they have a special duty and a special responsibility. This designation continues on throughout the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings. It continues on through all of the battles that the Israelites go through to subdue the promised land that God has promised them. And then it continues on when they are distributing the land. Once they had conquered the promised land, they began to distribute the land among the 12 tribes. Each tribe got a certain designation, and that land belonged to the tribe. And then the tribes designated land for the people within the tribes. This is how the promised land was divided up. So all 12 tribes got land. Except the Levites. The Levites were not part of the distribution. They actually created another tribe to take the Levites' place because the Levites were now holy. They were set apart. They were special to God. They were going to be priests. And it became the responsibility of the rest of the nation to support and help the priests because they were not to do other jobs. They weren't to farm the land. They weren't to be merchants. They weren't to do all of these other things. They were to be dedicated to the Lord. Everything that they did, all of their waking hours, their livelihood was in ministering in the temple and taking care of the temple. As a matter of fact, when the land distribution was being done, God said that the Levites could not own land. It was prohibited that they own land. By the way, if you ever wondered where did this strange idea of a parsonage come from, this is where it came from. That the rest of the body was to take care of the persons who were ministering to the rest of the body. Just a side note. So, the Levites couldn't own property. So how in the world does Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, how does he own land? As a Levite, he's not supposed to own land. So what land does he have to sell? It's a strange kind of statement. And that's why when a Jew in the first century reads this and reads that he is a Levite, that gets their attention. It, it's a strange thing. What are you supposed to do with that? Here's another complication. Barnabas is from Cyprus. I don't know what your geography is, but the sense of it, but it's about 400 miles from Jerusalem to Cyprus. Cyprus is an island out in the Mediterranean. And it's not like, uh, it's not, it's not like Barnabas can say, you know, I think I'll sell land back at home. I got some extra. I'll just make a call to my realtor. I'll send an email to the realty company. We'll get this done, and then they can wire me the None of this can take place easily. You know, what it, you know how long it takes to travel 400 miles, particularly to cross a good part of the Mediterranean Sea, the expense and the passage of it to go and to get that all done, or to get word to your family or to a realtor or whoever in Cyprus. Do you realize how long this would take? Not alone the, the time that it would take to sell a piece of property, get the money, and then transport the money safely <laughs> all the way back. None of that fits the timeline of Acts chapter 4. 
So I'm confused again. Why does a Levite own land and how in the world did he sell it in Cyprus and get the money? There's another difficulty in the text that is kind of confusing too, and that is the constituency of the church in Acts chapter 4. This is post-Pentecost. 3,000 people were saved at Pentecost. It's great, isn't it? How many of those 3,000 do you think lived in Jerusalem? The answer is not many. You see, Pentecost is one of the great festivals of the Jewish year. Passover is when Jesus dies. Fifty days later, uh, they they have Pentecost. And these were two of the three or four high holy days in the Jewish calendar when pilgrims would come from all over and come to Jerusalem. So when 3,000 are saved, as it mentions in Acts chapter 2, these people who are from all over begin to hear these Galileans, these apostles, these disciples, speaking in their language, in their tongue, because they're from every place. In other words, of the 3,000 people who made the constituency of the early church, most of them were not residents of Jerusalem, yet they're living in Jerusalem. So for a lot of them to sell property was the same problem that Barnabas had. They didn't have an easy access to sell their property. Plus, if they sell their property back home, wherever that is, where are they going to live? It's also the same difficulty for the believers that are living in Jerusalem. Because my sense is that those who are living in Jerusalem are probably helping to house those who don't live in Jerusalem. And so if you sell that, then where's everybody going to live? This is an absolute mess. It's not a simple thing that it says, yeah, they sold some land and gave it, you know, as anybody had need. This is, this is something. So why the frenzy? I know that they need to provide for people who are away from home and don't have any job. They don't have any means of support. If you're living in Cyprus, doing whatever you're doing in Cyprus, and now you're in Jerusalem, you're probably not plying whatever trade, business, or farming you had in Cyprus. You're not doing it in Jerusalem. I don't have any money. I've spent it all to get here. I spent everything I was going to use to go back home. I've spent that in the intervening months and time since Pentecost, now I got nothing. No wonder they're trying to find money and get it together to help these people. But where in the world are you getting stuff to sell? It doesn't, sell, it doesn't say that they're selling possessions, early on maybe, but eventually they start selling land and property. So where'd they get the land and the property, and why in the world would they sell it? Well, again, you have to understand the mentality of Acts chapter 4 and what's going on here. Here's a a passage from the first chapter of Acts, verse 11. This is crucial. In Acts 1, 11, here's what the angel says once they see Jesus ascending into heaven. He says, men of Galilee, these are the angels, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Well, from that, the early church was convinced that Jesus was returning quickly. As a matter of fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, in the last chapter of John, John 21, uh, verses 21 to 23, uh, Peter, this is at the end of Peter's restoration, Peter saw him and asked, Lord, what about him? And he points at John. And Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And then John adds this parenthetical note. Because of this, the rumor spread among believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He said, only if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So the church becomes convinced that John, the apostle, isn't going to die. John corrects this. He just says, no, he's just going to keep me alive. And John ends up being the last of the apostles. All of this adds together to the fact that what happens is that the church believes that Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. If you believe that Jesus is coming back in your lifetime, 
Who cares about your house? Who cares about your land? And so people are getting rid of property because, you know, you can't take it with you. Some of you are living like you can, but trust me, you can't take it with you. So what are they going to do with all this? So if Jesus is returning in, J in John's lifetime, if Jesus is intimately coming back and they don't need their property, if believers are going to be caught up to meet him in the air, as Paul will eventually tell the Thessalonians, then what one piece of property might a Levite from Cyprus own in Jerusalem that would be legal for him to own and sell and give the proceeds to the cause? Anybody? A what? Church land? Mm, no. Something far more personal. A grave. The only possible thing that Barnabas, a Levite from Cyprus, would own in Jerusalem was a grave plot. And if you're going to get caught up to meet him in the air, what do you need a grave plot for? Now you get an idea as to why this was special. Barnabas, the Levite, who can only own one little piece of property, that to put his bones in when he dies, even gives that over to the cause. In other words, what makes Barnabas' actions so special, so unique, so powerful, so important that they rename him Son of Encouragement is because in giving over his own grave plot, Barnabas says, I'm all in on who Jesus is. I'm going to give everything. Everything that I have. It may not be much, but I'll give the everything I've got over to God, even my burial plot. Folks, this is what it means to be a Christian. You don't get to be a Christian by saying, okay, God, I like you. I think Jesus is pretty good. I think the Spirit is uh, nice. I like uh, First Church in Talmadge. You know, I'll put a couple of bucks in the offering plate. Surely my $5 will change your financial situation. So, you know, I'll give 50% over to God of my life. <laughs> no. Well, then you really get spiritual and you start coming and you say, you know, I'm really going to get into this. I'm going to give over 75%, 75% of my life. God can have. It's just that, no. 80, Lord, I'll give it. No. 90. Ninety-nine. Can I have just this one little, one little piece? You want to know what believing in Christ means? It means everything. All that I am. All that I have. I hold nothing back what's the old hymn is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid is your heart does your heart the spirit control you're either all in or you ain't in bad grammar good theology The key here that Barnabas tells us is that this is what has to happen. You have to become a Levite. I'm not saying you got to take care of the, the church property, though that would be a bad idea. But I'm saying you've got to give it all. You've got to say, no, no, nothing else. 
Everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I shall be belongs to God. Jesus said this when they said, your mom is outside with your brothers. He said, my, my brothers and sisters are those who do the will of God. You want to be a brother or sister to Jesus Christ, then you do the will of God. How do you do the will of God? You do it all. You give it all. You think Daniel Kim woke up one day and said, my greatest desire is to live in Budapest? But God called him, and he's living out his life. This is the reality of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means to enter into the Levitical priesthood. It means that I'm going to give everything. We kind of started this venture. I think the second sermon I did, I talked about the Pharisees causing problems in Acts chapter 15 because this idea of people still had to be Jews before they became Christians. Well, they make a mess of things by trying to put this Pharisaic insight into the belief as a Christian. Barnabas puts the Levitical insight in, and he gets honored for that because the Levitical insight is not that you have to do this, this, and this to obey the law. The Levitical insight is... I'm in. All that I am, all that I got, it's all yours, Lord. I'm going to hold nothing back. The church today suffers because there are far too many people that want to be errands and lead the thing than there are Levites that want to serve the church. We got too many chiefs. Not enough cooks. All right, not here. You got plenty. All right, you don't understand. You either lay it all on the altar and say, Lord, you got it all, or you're playing this game where you think you can bargain with God and still keep hold and control of your own life. You're either all in or you're not. We need more Levites in the church. More Barnabases, who says, you can have it all. Ivan the Great was one of the Russian leaders who had a tremendous impact on his country and the world. And at one point, Ivan the Great converted to Christianity. And when the church found out that he had converted and wanted to be baptized, they sent a priest to him to take him through catechism, doctrine, so that he could learn what he had to learn and be baptized. And they accelerated the process so that Ivan could be baptized because this was huge for the country. And so as the time came, as they were getting ready to baptize Ivan, Ivan the Great's uh, loyal guard, the 500 soldiers that were his loyal soldiers, they all came to the priest and said, if Ivan the Great is going to be baptized, the 500 of us want to be baptized as well. And so hurriedly, the church got a bunch of priests to take them through a very, uh, a very detailed and yet very quick catechism so that they could all be baptized. And in the process of that, they ran across a problem. The problem was that according to church law and doctrine at that time, a soldier, a professional soldier, could not be baptized. The reason you couldn't be baptized was because your job as a professional soldier involved bloodshed. The church was not going to condone bloodshed. Ivan said he wouldn't be baptized unless the 500 would be baptized. The 500 said that they wanted to be baptized. The church was now in crisis. And so some brilliant theologian, some brilliant priest came up with this awful solution. Decided that they would have 500 priests who would baptize the 500 soldiers all at once. They went, into the, uh, they went into the river in full military regalia. And just before they were baptized, all the soldiers reached and pulled the sword out of their sheath and held it up in the air. The priests then immersed them in the water, all except the arm and the sword, so that they continued to be soldiers. It's called the baptism of the body without the arm. 
the unbaptized arm. Somehow we have adapted and adopted that for our own lives. Lord, you could have everything except this one thing. You can baptize my life except for this one thing. My life is holy, it's yours, except for this thing. So how do you overcome the unbaptized arm? How do you go all in, so to speak? Well, let me suggest that you can do that in the here and now. I, I know we're, we're process people. We, we need to go through a whole kind of process and make lists and check them all up. I mean, just, you just give it all. I, I realize that may seem simplistic, and I don't mean it to be. I know it takes quite a bit of effort, but nevertheless, you give it all. You've got to have some skin in the game if you're going to be part of the community of the called. Now, I'm not asking you to go sell your grave plot, and I'm not asking you to go sell your house. Uh, that's a special circumstance that involves the atmosphere of what was going on in Acts chapter 4. I don't think you're required to do that, though I will tell you that during COVID, one of the members of our church, his wife uh, was uh, going further into Alzheimer's, and his kids called him and said, Dad, you got to move you and Mom back home to Maryland. And so he packed up. He had actually two houses in Florida that he, one he had lived in, one he rented out. He sold them both, and he moved back from Florida back to Maryland. On the way out of town, he stopped in the church office and said, I wanted to leave you my offering. He tithed off of the sale of both houses. He left an offering of $60,000 as he left town. I'm just saying, in case you want to. <laughs> Scott, you all right with that? He's all right with that. All right, if you don't want to do that or if you can't do that, then let me, baby steps, right? Baby steps. Here's a radical idea. Tithe. 10%. 10%. After all, God owns 100% of you, right? Amen? Can I get an amen? Well, all he's asking for is 10% back. And by the way, I have found that if you give him 10%, he blesses you in such ways that you never miss the 10%. If I can trust him with 90, why can't I, tr why can't I trust him for the other 10? I've tithed ever since I became a Christian, ever since Joni and I got married and started in ministry. We tithed when we didn't have anything to tithe. God's been gracious. You want to start somewhere? 10%. Well, is that 10% of the gross or is that 10? I don't care. If you get to 10% of anything, Scott will be happy, the church will be happy, God will be pleased, and you'll be blessed. How do we do this? Well, how about daring to put yourself out and to say, everything I am, Lord, I'll try it. How about inviting somebody to church? Oh, God, did he really go there? Is that what he wants? I don't know anybody. Well, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And if you don't really know anybody to invite to church, then pray, Lord, help me bump into somebody I don't know that I can invite them to church. You'd be amazed what God can do. Go talk to your brother or your sister. Oh, gosh, my sister. My neighbor. I don't like my neighbor. Go talk to a coworker. They bore me. It's... Go talk to a friend. I don't like my friends. You know, whatever it is, find somebody and let them know that you don't have an unbaptized arm, that you're a Levite, and that you put everything into the center. Have a dedication service. Invite some people over to your house and anoint the doorposts of your home. See, so many of us think that a house is for our, our benefit. It's for, for us to use. I, I, I have a feeling that your house is for God's usage. You don't have to sell it, but it wouldn't be a bad idea if you anointed it and said, Lord, use it as you will. 
even in time of COVID, houses can be utilized for the glory of God. So, you know, put some oil on the doorpost. Oh, by the way, before you walked in here today, I asked Linda to go around and anoint all the doorposts of entryways into the sanctuary. You got prayed for before you came in in anticipation that you would give all. Anoint your car. Of course, I don't have any religious paraphernalia on my car because of the way that I drive, but nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, I don't want anybody to know I'm a Christian. Anyway, <laughs> how about using your car for the kingdom, for the cause of Christ? How about your yard? I'm doing my yard. I've watched Doug and Susan use their yard for Christ. Lives have been changed in their yard. Brianna almost died in their yard <laughs> when the swing fell. What are you doing with your yard? Your basement. They've used their basement for seven weeks to house Joni and I. They were hoping we wouldn't come upstairs, but we did. We did. What have you got? You got a boat. You got a house on the lake. I don't know what you've got. You got a place in Florida. Come see us. I don't know what you've got, but it ought to be dedicated to the Lord to be used by him. You know, a guy that moved into a neighborhood and Somebody had uh, problems with a car, and he said, you having problems with your car? I said, yeah, I don't know what to do. He said, hey, let me go get my tools. He walked over. didn't even know the guy. He just moved in the neighborhood. He grabbed his toolbox. He came back, started tinkering with the car, and he said, man, you got some great tools there. What do you do with those tools? What do you make with those tools? And the guy said, friends, mostly. <laughs> what do you got? Garden, a tool shed, a boat, a sewing kit. I don't, what do you got? Didn't you guys have something a few years back where you, you, the, there was like money that you borrowed and talked about the parable of the talents and you passed it out and, and you all took the money and put it into something and then brought the offering back and the offering was so much more than what was distributed? Did you learn what God can do from that? I don't know. Let him use a car and a yard and a toolbox and whatever you got. Whatever you got. All right, now I'm just going to get nosy. Why don't you anoint your phone? I got quiet in here. How about praying over Facebook? I'm saying, Lord, whatever... Whatever I post, let it bring glory to you. Or Instagram, or chat rooms that you're in, or whatever social media thing you do and hang out. How about if you dedicated that to the Lord? That'd reduce your time on all of them, probably. How about anointing one another? How about anointing your kids or your children or your family? How about anointing your marriage? How about doing something that says, I'm a Levite. Everything I have is yours. So, I tried to figure out what was the best way to end this sermon in our time together, and I decided maybe that this would be a good time for an anointing service. See, we, we have these anointing services and we limit it to people who have physical problems and issues. And if you want to come to the altar to be healed, we'll anoint you and lay hands on you because the Bible instructs us to do that. And it's a great thing to do. It's not the anointing service I'm necessarily talking about today. I'm just talking about an anointing service. Where you just come and say, Lord, I'm yours. It's kind of like communion, but without the bread and the juice. And you just come and somebody anoints you. 
You don't have to say anything. You, to, you just come forward. And let, we used to do this every, every Sunday, the church that Joni and I attend in Kissimmee. Every Sunday during prayer, we'd have, the ministers would be out in the aisles, and people just come forth and just anoint them. Just anoint them in Jesus' name. Maybe that's a step we can take to say, I'd like to be a Levite, Lord. And so I've got a couple of the elders that are going to be up here in front, and they're going to anoint people who just want to be anointed and go back to their seat. And then I've got a couple of other people that are going to be at the far end of the altars over here. And if you want to be prayed for as well as anointed, then you can go to them at the far end, and they'll anoint you with oil, lay hands on you, and pray for you. It's just a time of anointing where you say, Lord, I'm all in. Maybe some of you are like Thomas that say, I believe the Lord, but help my unbelief. Maybe some of you are saying, I've been giving you 80 and maybe 85, it's time to give 100. Maybe some of you just said, Lord, I've given you my life. I just want to make sure that you know that the rest of my life, however long or short, is yours too. But I think this would be a special time of dedication where we say, Lord, I'm yours. So I'd like the worship team to come. Charlie, if you would, I'd like for those that are designated to do the anointing uh, to come and to gather at the places where they're going to stand. The worship team is going to lead us in a song that you may be familiar with. It talks about surrendering all, that I surrender all. And so, if you're willing to surrender all, whatever that means, if you want to be anointed, just come. Linda and Debbie are here for people who just want to be anointed. We have people on the outside at the end of the altar if you want to be prayed for. Why don't you stand as we sing and just allow the Spirit to lead you in this time. Oh Lord, let this be a time of surrendering, a time of yielding, a time of empowering. Let the church live out its call to be a Levite, to be set apart, to be holy in your eyes. Take our everything, oh Lord, for we are yours in Jesus' name.